Good evening. It's good to be with you again this evening. Thank God for all of His blessings unto us. And um, this evening I want to turn our attention to Romans chapter 1. As you know, we've been doing a study through the book of Romans since March, actually. As each time I've come, we've taken our text from Romans. And last Sunday morning, we were looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And I just want to begin by reading that passage once again. But this time we want to pause for a moment and think about a very controversial subject that is really at the forefront of a lot of Christian circles. And um, there's been church splits over it, denominational splits, and a lot of confusion. And so I just want us to consider this this evening. Uh, So let's just look at this passage and uh, then we'll begin. Romans chapter 1 Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Amen. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. Would you just bow your heads with me in prayer? Dear God, we thank You so much for allowing us to be here this evening, and we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Spirit's presence with us. And now, dear God, as we turn our attention to the Scripture tonight, we just want to pause and acknowledge our dependence on You. God, I need You. I need You to use my mind and my body and my voice To your honor and glory, help me to declare the truth of your word in a very clear and understandable way. Father, I also pray that you would be with those under the sound of my voice, that they would hear you speaking through me, and that you would minister to their hearts and minds through what is shared here tonight. 
So, Father, we just are looking to you to bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said at the outset, one of the major issues confronting the church today is the church's view on homosexuality. And there are a lot of debates on this issue with Christians coming down on both sides of the argument. Those who feel that homosexuality is wrong and those who feel it's okay. Uh, Recently, Steve Chalk, a well-known Christian author, wrote in Christianity Today of his support for same-sex marriage. I've gotten to know Steve a little bit and I was really surprised at the, the view that he took. And uh, we see that with many people, uh, Christians, deciding that it is okay for same-sex marriages to exist. Well, I want us to look tonight at what the Bible has to say. And I just want to say at the outset, this is going to be a very limited treatment of this subject. I'm not going to address maybe you might call scientific or biological issues about whether people are born that way. I'm not going to deal with the social, political aspects of it, whether the church should be involved in these things or whether government should take into account Christian moralities. All I want us to consider tonight and have everyone leave with is an understanding of what it is that the Bible has to say. And I hope you feel like me that the Bible has something important to say and it should guide our beliefs. But that's the whole point tonight. What is the Bible actually has to say? I find that there are a lot of Christians who don't really know. They know that maybe the church they go to believes it's wrong, but they don't know why the church believes that. And then there are others who believe that the Bible is silent on it, and that's not true. The Bible does speak on this issue. One of the texts that the Bible uh, speaks on is the one that we just read. And there are a handful of other passages as well. I put the list up here. Uh, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, Romans 1, uh, 26 and 27 particularly. Uh, we just read that. 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, 1 Timothy 1 and 10, and Jude 7. Uh, these are the only scriptures that I see where homosexuality is explicitly referred to. Uh, Jesus never speaks on it. He never teaches on it. Uh, but in the 19th chapter of Matthew, Jesus is asked if it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause. And Jesus could have just responded to that question directly, yes or no, but instead he prefaced his answer with a reference to the creation account and replied that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. And I believe this is significant because Jesus is clearly defining marriage as between a man and a woman. Well, we don't have time to look at all of these passages tonight, so I want to look at one in the Old Testament along with this one here. So let's turn with me to uh, Leviticus chapter 18, the 18th chapter of Leviticus. And I've chosen this passage because the one in Romans along and this one here are the two that are the most explicit in their treatment or their statement about homosexuality. Leviticus chapter 18, beginning at verse number 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. 
No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same house or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife. <clears throat> born to your father, she is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister. She is your mother's close relative. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. Sexual relations. She is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch. Then you must not, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And verse 22, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman that is detestable. Verse 23, do not have sexual relations with an animal and defy yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourself in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. You must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Anyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourself with them. I am the Lord your God. Verse 22 again. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman that is detestable. Now the text seems to be very clear about the prohibition against homosexuality. Yet there are some Christians who still believe that it's okay for homosexuals to engage in those relationships and, in fact, to marry. And why is that the case? Well, there are two main arguments that are used against the application of this text today. One, in ancient times, homosexuality was closely linked with idol worship. You know, you can think of things like temple prostitutes. And they believe that the strong commendation of homosexuality mentioned here was not because that sexual practice was immoral, but because it was connected with idolatry. So some read this and say what God is really talking about is the use of homosexuality in idol worship. And that's the problem. So as long as it's not associated with idol worship, it's okay. The problem with that thinking is that the prohibition against homosexuality found in Leviticus 18.22 is in a long list of immoral sexual practices. And idol worship is not in view here. It's not mentioned. 
one of the first things I learned about interpreting scripture was to ask two fundamental questions. And the first is, what is the author or the writer talking about? And what is he saying about what he is talking about? And what he is saying here is that here is a list of sexual practices you are not to engage in because they are an abomination before God. And if you do these things, you will be punished. That's what he's talking about. The condemnation of homosexuality is made apart from any explicit reference to idolatrous practice. And this is also true of all the other sexual sins listed in chapter 18. The plain, natural meaning of Leviticus 18.22 is that homosexuality is wrong. The second objection people have to this text and the application of it in our lives today is that they would say that it doesn't apply to us today. They would say even if Leviticus 18.22 condemns homosexuality, that doesn't mean that it's wrong for us today. And the reasoning is that the text is part of the law of Moses. And these things are no longer applicable today. They would point out that this same Levitical laws condemn the wearing of clothing of mixed fabrics and eating with unwashed hands. And that is true. There are some parts of the law that said that you were not to mix two types of fabrics or you're not to mix different types of foods. And if you washed, if you ate with unclean hands, that was a sin. So they say that this is part of that law. We don't apply it to those things, so we don't apply to this either. The problem with that is that although those ceremonial aspects of the law don't apply to us, the prohibition against homosexuality does. I found it helpful to divide the law of Moses into three categories. And this answers the fundamental question, were all aspects of the law of Moses done away with? Were all aspects of the law of Moses done with? So everything in the Old Testament, is it just to be chucked to the side and said, that doesn't apply anymore? And if some of it does apply and some doesn't, then how do we determine which laws are still applicable and which are not? Well, as I said, I found uh, this a helpful way to look at it. There are three types of laws in the law of Moses. Moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. Civil laws are laws that relate to how Israel was to operate as a nation. You know, these are things that dealt exactly or specifically with them. And an example would be the gleaning laws in Leviticus 19 verses 9 to 10. They were told that whenever they harvest their crops, when they went through it one time, they were to leave some behind for the poor and the orphans and the widows to come and get it. Now that was not something that was for all times. That was how they would operate as a nation. Those were national laws. Civil laws found in the Old Testament do not apply to us today. They apply to how they were to operate as a nation. The next type are ceremonial laws. Sin offerings and ritual cleansings are examples of ceremonial laws. These are the laws that pertain to their religious practices, purifications, and worship. So there were some ceremonial laws that no longer apply to us because Jesus Christ fulfilled those. He is the fulfillment of the law. So these things that dealt with you know, uncleanness and, and ceremonies and rituals, those don't apply to us either. But this third set of laws do apply to us. Third set, the moral laws. And these are laws that regulate conduct and ethical choices. Laws against adultery, murder, and stealing are examples of moral laws. Now, 
it is true that since the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we no longer have to adhere to the law of Moses. <coughs> However, the laws that were moral in nature still apply today. And the reason they do is because they predate the law of Moses and are founded on eternal moral principles. Now I want to make sure you understand this. Of all the laws in the Old Testament, there are three types. The civil laws that, dealt, that governed how they would operate as a nation. Okay? And that was only for them. Then the ceremonial laws that dealt with how they worshipped. Those don't apply to us because Jesus Christ fulfilled that part of the law. But the moral laws really aren't a part of the law of Moses. They predate the law of Moses and they're included in it. But these still apply today because they are founded on eternal moral principles. Even before the law of Moses was handed down, it was wrong to murder. It wasn't okay to murder until God sent the law. And now murder was wrong. It was always wrong to murder. It was always wrong to hate. It was always wrong to steal. All of these things are examples of moral laws that still apply today. Now the problem with the argument that homosexuality is no longer prohibited because the prohibition against it was part of the law of Moses is that the prohibition against homosexuality is moral. Not civil. It wasn't something that just applied to them as a nation of Israel and that ceremonial. Clearly here in chapter 18, and that's why I read the whole chapter, because the beginning and the end are so critical. In the beginning, God is telling them, here are the laws that I want you to adhere to. And do not do as the people you used to live among did. And don't do as the people who used to live in Canaan do. You must be different from them. All of these principles that I'm telling you here are moral principles that they violated. And because of that, God's judgment came down on them. And he says, if you violate these principles, God's judgment will come down on you as well. So this prohibition is moral, not ceremonial, and not civil. It is listed with other immoral sexual acts. It is referred to in extremely strong terms. It's, it's in one translation, detestable, and others an abomination. And it carries the gravest consequence capital punishment. The reason for that is because this was a moral problem, not a ceremonial, religious problem, or a civil problem. So, from Leviticus, we can understand that when God handed down these laws to the children of Israel, He was explaining to them His behavior for them that was to be different from the nations that had come before them. And it was based on eternal moral principles. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 1. In Leviticus, I gave you a couple of reasons or objections that people give to why that very simple, straightforward, nobody can read Leviticus 18.22 and come away with any other understanding of what that verse means other than homosexuality is wrong. So the only way to get around it is you have to say, yeah, that's what it meant then, but that's not what it means today. Now, they don't have the same luxury when they come to Romans chapter 1 because it's not in the Old Testament. It's not part of the law of Moses. They can't just say, well, that's Old Testament, that's the law of Moses, that doesn't apply. And that's why this passage here, verses 26 and 27, are the hardest for people who think it's okay, uh, you know, for people to be homosexuals and God doesn't care to really get around. And what they tend to do with Romans 1, 26 and 27 is employ a technique I would call divide and conquer. Remember all of those scripture texts I showed on the first screen? What they do is they try to knock the pins out from each one 
So at the end of the day, the only one left standing is Romans 1, 26, 27, because this one is, you know, very, very plain what it means. And then say, well, you can't build a whole teaching on one scripture. And Paul is the only one who says this. So this really doesn't apply either. This one, there's really less argument against because... In verse 26, let's read it again. It says, God gave them over to shameful lust. This is what he, you know, how he describes homosexuality. Even their women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. Again, very straightforward, plain language about what homosexuality is. It's shameful lust and unnatural affection. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men. Again, very strong language. And received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Once again, a kind of plain, natural, straightforward reading of this text would make it very clear that God is condemning the practice of homosexuality. And the scripture here, the whole context here is that because mankind has rebelled against God, and refuse to acknowledge and honor Him as the sovereign creator of this world, God has allowed mankind to pursue their sinful desires. That's what it says in verse 24. And this has affected man's sexuality. Verse 24, it affected it by degrading their bodies with one another. Verse 26, women exchanging natural relations with men for unnatural ones with other women. Verse 27, men also abandoning natural relations with women for unnatural relations with other men. And the plain, natural meaning of this text is clear. As a result of man's rebellion against God, God has allowed mankind to pursue their sinful desires, and this has led to mankind engaging in perverted sexual acts, including homosexuality, which has resulted in them receiving the due penalty for their perversion. This is what the Bible says. So, what can we conclude from these two passages? Well, the first thing we can conclude is that homosexuality is not a major subject in the Bible. It's not. It's only mentioned a handful of times. And wherever homosexuality is mentioned, either explicitly or just alluded to, it is not the subject, the primary subject being discussed. Whenever it is mentioned, it is always in a list of immoral behaviors. That's the only time it's ever referenced or referred to, is in a list of immoral behaviors. Next slide. Whenever it is mentioned, it is mentioned in an example of wrong behavior. That's the context. It's never used in a good context or as something to be you know, uh, uh, celebrated or accepted. It's always as an example of wrong behavior. Next slide. Whenever it is mentioned, it is always condemned and never condoned. There is no example in the whole of Scripture where homosexuality is condoned or celebrated or approved of. Every time it's mentioned, it is condemned. I believe the evidence is clear. The Bible calls homosexuality a sin. This is what the Bible teaches. Some people don't want to accept it. They don't want to believe that it applies today or they want to make some other explanation for it. But there's no way around it. The Bible calls homosexuality a sin. And if we're going to believe that the Bible is authoritative and inspired and is our rule of faith and conduct, then we have to give uh, real credence to what the Bible says. In light of all of this, how should we respond? Well, there are a few things I want to just mention. 
One, we must affirm the truth of God's word. The only way you can condone homosexuality as a Christian is to undermine the authority of scripture. And that's a very slippery slope. If we take what the Bible says on a subject and it's very clear and then just set it to the side because it doesn't fit with our times or it makes us uncomfortable or there's a shift in public opinion about it, then soon we will undermine the authority of all of scripture. No scripture will have any impact on our lives. The other thing in terms of how we respond, we must respond to homosexuals in love, not condemnation. Homosexuals are not our enemy. Satan is. And we've got to have the same attitude that God has. God loves the sinner. He hates the sin. We have to make that distinction. I'm deeply troubled by Christians who use the pulpit or the church or Christian platforms to denigrate homosexuals, to call them names, to mistreat them. You know, all of that is very unloving. That's not Christ-like at all. We must not ever respond to them in condemnation, <clears throat> but in love. And then the other thing is, we must stop having a double standard when it comes to sexual sins. Where we tolerate heterosexual sin, but we want to condemn strongly homosexual sin. And I've seen that in the church. You know, it's a sin for anyone to have sex outside of marriage. You know, male with a female, just like two men. And the church cannot condone the sinful acts and behaviors of heterosexuals and kind of look the other way and act like it's okay and then condemn the sins of homosexuality. Sin is sin. Amen? It's all just sin and people need to be saved. And then homosexuals can be one to Christ and experience the transforming power of Jesus Christ. I know some people like this. I, one of my classmates at Moody Bible Institute in fact, God has brought him to a whole ministry now where he travels the world sharing his testimony. He's written a book about how God delivered him out of a life of homosexuality. And he's able to be a real blessing to people who have been tempted in that same way and struggle with those same things. And has been able to share his story of healing and restoration and forgiveness and how God has changed his life. And that's what the, whole, the power of the gospel is all about. Helping people to find healing and, and uh, having their relationship with God restored through Jesus Christ. So, just to conclude... I want us to be very clear about what the Bible teaches on this subject. And to know that as Christians, we have to take a stand for God's word. Because this is what the Bible teaches. But we must do it in love. We must not look at homosexuals as people to be downed and frowned upon and ridiculed and all these other things. And instead, we need to evangelize them and try to win them to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, that's a quick overview of some of the important passages. And, uh, you know, if you are interested in the subject further, I hope you'll take this as a foundation and explore it more. But there is strong biblical evidence for the view that we have. And it's rooted in a deep feeling that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's not man-made and it's authoritative. That we can believe what it says and apply it to our lives today. Amen. Well, I just want to close in uh, prayer at this time. And um, again, just hope that has been helpful to you and a foundation for future uh, study on this subject. Let's pray and then I hand it over to you, Graham. Dear God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to look into your word and 
to understand a little bit better this subject that has brought a lot of controversy and in some cases, unfortunately, a lot of hurt. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be able to deal with people who are homosexuals with a great deal of love and sensitivity. Father, I pray you also help us to be able to deal with fellow brothers and sisters who may disagree with us or have a different viewpoint on it with the same spirit. God, I pray that you'd help us to always in everything that we do uh, try to represent you, try to be imitators of God and live a life of love that through our love and through our acceptance and, and, and willingness to be able to, to show people the love of Christ that we can win men and women, boys and girls to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, I also pray for your church, the body of Christ at this time. Uh, all over the world, this topic has divided churches, divided Christians, uh, caused a lot of upset, even sometimes among families and friends. And I pray for your grace. I pray for your mercy and your peace in our hearts and our minds. And I pray, dear God, that as Jesus prayed, that your will would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.